and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Well, folks, we really can't hide it any longer. Summer is officially over. It's the first full week of fall, and while that makes me happy for my chance to enjoy the opportunity to crunch some leaves and get to enjoy some brisk weather where I'm able to wear jeans and a light jacket, you know, enjoy yard work out in the sunshine without sweating. I'm not going to lie, I'm actually a little bit saddened that we have to draw our summer of canon to a close. This whole season we've been talking about the crazy work of those go-go boys, the history of canon films, and we've covered a selection of their offerings. So now, the LSCE would like to invite you to come along with us and join us for a little bit of cinematic history as we wrap this session up with The Fate of the Go-Go Boys. Join us! So as we discussed last week, Bloodsport did make Canon some money, but it didn't set them up for a wave of success either. What it did do was it gave them their next action hero to exploit in one Jean-Claude Van Damme, but even that was sort of a dubious honor because, well, frankly, money was tight. The committee voting system set up by Peretti really reigned in Golan's rampant spending and his prechant to wheel and deal, which clipped the loudmouth director's wings and it forced him to actually be a team player when it came to setting up projects. In short, he hated it. Globus, for his part, was experiencing a sort of stability that he had not had in years, focused now on raising money for pictures that they felt they could actually fund and make, and he was enjoying the structure that the new board brought. Cannon continued to push out, well, we are a B-movie podcast, but let's call a spade a spade, garbage that was only halfway written, halfway filmed, and pretty much not really... um, enjoying a lot of post-production, but if the film was sitting in the can, they were going to use it. And that created a bunch of abysmal offerings, such as the Albert Payun's 1988 sci-fi classic Alien from L.A., starring supermodel Kathy Ireland and Friday the 13th and Return of the Living Dead star Tom Matthews. This movie came out and was based on Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth and truly i wouldn't call it a very coherent film but you know it's got your basic plot the discovery of an underground lost continent of atlantis an ancient alien spacecraft and of course because why not a mob boss did it make a bunch of money not really but it was a film that was left over and you were dealing with um, basically public domain property when it came to Vern's stories. So 
Cannon had in-house writer and producer Rusty Lemorand tasked with shooting the sequel, which was also very lazily based on the very same novel, which created yet another version of Journey to the Center of the Earth. How droll. Lemorand was not granted the budget or the time to properly finish the creatures or the special effects for the film, and he would eventually be replaced on the project with Payun, just to have the job get done. Payun did the best that he could, but really, when you get to see what this movie is, in the end, ish, it's not very great. And, what's more, it got pushed to being a direct-to-video release instead of an actual theatrical. Now, Superman 5, we know that was out of the question, because Canon had made a horrible, horrible debacle with Superman 4, but the Go-Go Boys were shrewd enough to know that they had an ace up their sleeve. You see, a couple of years back, they had bought the rights of several Marvel properties in a fire sale when Marvel was undergoing a horrific, horrific downturn. Basically, <laughs> Stan Lee was selling off everything he could to keep the doors open, and the good fellows at Canon came along just in time to buy the rights to both Spider-Man and Captain America and they had option to make a big screen adaptation of Spider-Man, which, once again, they were going to hand over to director Payun, and eventually they would figure out what they were going to do with Cap. Golan had a very hard time understanding that Spider-Man as a character was different than Superman, mainly because he never took the time to read any of the comics or even watch the 1960s cartoon series. So he spent a good chunk of his time arguing with his pre-production team about how he was disappointed that no one was listening to him and his demands that Spidey should be flying. Clearly, all superheroes are the same. Costumes and sets were made. Director Albert Payune was again called upon to take over the reins, but the overall setup was still viewed as being too costly, and so the project ended up being shelved. Canon would eventually end up dumping the rights to Spider-Man for $5 million to Corolco Pictures, who would attempt to mount their own version of Spider-Man with a now fairly well-received James Cameron slated to direct. But that project would never actually see fruition, as the company experienced some solvency issues in the late 1980s and eventually underwent a corporate restructuring. So that saw its back catalog and properties getting bought up by MGM, but we're actually going to get into that a little bit later. Regardless, Canon got the rights to Spider-Man back again, and they held that close to the vest, knowing they would eventually either have to do something with the project, or contractually, they would have to give the rights back to Marvel by 1990. Golan had finally pitched and gotten his new partners to greenlight a passion project that he had in the hopper for quite some time. One that he wrote himself and would go on to direct. A historical biopic about Hannah Sinesh, one of the Jewish special operative executives recruited by the British RAF at the age of 23 to parachute into Nazi-controlled Hungary during the Second World War to help assist the Allied forces. She was discovered on her first mission, she was captured, tortured, and ultimately she was executed by the Nazi High Command. But to this day, she's a venerated hero in Israel, and Golan had wanted to make a film to highlight her story and to sort of introduce her to new audiences. He put this all together under the working title of Hannah's War. Golan had actually put together a decent cast. He had Maruska Demeters, Ellen Bernstein, Donald Pleasance, Igrid Pitt, 
David Warner, and he shot the film with a rather generous budget, at least as far as a canon film goes. $20 million. I mean, really, nice to have money again, eh? And they would go on location to film in both Israel and Hungary. He then did a media blitz in the fall of 1988 to promote the film for its November release and to assure the powers of Hollywood that the Go-Go Boys were absolutely happy and were still doing their thing, announcing that his next project was going to be a big screen adaptation of the Three Penny Opera, and proudly boasting that the worst of times for canon was now proudly behind them. Although he wanted to make it clear in the interview that he gave to Variety that he was very secure in his position as Canon's creative decision maker, as if trying to downplay the fact that it essentially had to be bailed out and was no longer the man calling the shots. He was also eyeing up a dance craze that was happening at the local nightclubs, where Latin dancing, particularly the dance of the Lombada, was gaining traction with a new generation who were learning the art. Cannon had greenlit a picture to highlight this hunch. After all, they had been right on the money with breaking, and most dancing movies could be made rather cheaply. All in all, things seemed to be trending positive for Cannon. who sit in fate, those who are helpless, and those who are fearless. She was a young girl when the world went mad. Only Christians may be elected to important positions. Seneca Nico is a Jew. I withdraw my nomination. And a young woman when the chance came to make it right. This will never work, sir. London must think I'm running some bloody nursery school here. Women can be very useful out there, McCormack. Hannah Sinich, are you aware of the priorities of this mission? To drop in behind enemy lines to establish contact with local resistance groups. Transfer any and all information we gather. In a time when countless people gave up hope. This will probably be a suicide mission. Is that interesting? Hannah Sinich fought back. The true story of a young woman whose courage became an inspiration to the world. Open the other boxes! There's people inside! Get them out! Speak! 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 What is your name? I do not admit to having betrayed my country. Do you wish to plead guilty and ask for a pardon? I will never plead guilty. Where is she? Where's my daughter?
This feel-good attitude would not last, because when Hannah's War made its debut, it was a critical and commercial flop. As one who has seen it, it's somewhat easy to see why. The characters are rather cookie-cutter and cartoonish, and while this is actually a bit of fun to see, especially when you have Donald Plessence as a cruel Nazi torturer chewing up the scenery, as a product, it's a complete misfire. You're making a film that amounts to being a piece of pro-Israeli propaganda, and you're trying to sell it to American audiences who don't quite connect to the story. Nor should they, really. I mean, I don't mean to be dismissive of Sinesh and her personal sacrifice, but American audiences don't care. You have a main character in this narrative as Zanesh, who trains, accepts a dangerous mission, and then gets caught on that very first mission. And then we watch her get brutalized and ultimately executed. It's an art house movie, and I mean, truly, this might have worked with audiences 20 or 30 years down the line, but for a big screen release in 1988, this is not what American audiences at the time wanted to see over a Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Hannah's War grossed a little less than $140,000 during its theatrical run. While this was old hat to Golan and Globus, Peretti and Fiorini were not looking to eat losses brought on by Golan's quest to, quote, make art, and his musical adaptation of the Three Penny Opera was going to be under heavy review, and its budget was going to be way scaled back. This was viewed as unacceptable to Golan, who was no longer willing to smile and be a team player. He was an artist. He was a visionary. He built canon into what it was, and by 1989, he was ready to break and start his own studio. What made Golan's break with canon all the worse is his own cousin, Yoram Globus, was siding with partners Peretti and Fiorini. He wanted to stay and continue working on projects where there was a sense of stability. To Golan, this was the ultimate form of betrayal from his own family. He accused Globus of being seduced by Peretti and his money, but Globus saw things differently. He was fed up with his cousin sending him on what seemed to be an endless chase to find financing for all of his artistic whims, and in an interview in 2014, he would retrospectively look back and estimate that he had, when Canon was at the height of greenlighting 45-plus films a year, raised over a billion dollars in a calendar year just to fund his cousin's dreams, and honestly, he was exhausted. It took a toll on his life, it cost him a marriage, it estranged him from his children. He wanted to be creative, yes, but he wanted stability. Golan wouldn't see this as anything other than treachery, though. In spite of the fact that Globus had begged his cousin to reconsider and please stay with the company. They could still work together, they could make movies, they just needed to slow down a bit. Globus had the majority of the producers and directors on Cannon's payroll side with him, as well as other family members, and collectively they all worked to try to keep Golan in the fold, begging him to reconsider. Just cool off, take a vacation, unwind a little, we'll reconvene and make some more movies together. But Golan wasn't having it. His response was simple, a divorce is a divorce is a divorce. The way he saw it, at least in the quote that he gave to director Hilla Medalia, in the end, it was a difference of philosophy about motion pictures. Globus wanted to buy cinemas, and I wanted to make movies. 
that, and truthfully, he blamed Peretti and Fiorini for poisoning his own flesh and blood against him, something that he would never forgive them for. Now, I'll say this. For a man who so vociferously claimed that he was being screwed over and mistreated, I have to say, Golan's ex-partners gave him an amazing severance package when he decided to leave Canon. Golan had announced that he was going to start his own company and directly compete against his former partners. Instead of trying to crush him or hobble him in any way, Peretti, Globus, and Fioretti gave him one of the smaller companies that Pathé Films had acquired, 21st Century Pictures, and they immediately installed Golan as the CEO. He was gifted about 10 intellectual properties that he had already pitched to Canon that were considered his. He had the full rights to still retain Spider-Man and Captain America. And for the dissolution of his direct partnership with Globus, Yoram ended up paying Menachem $15 million out of pocket personally. And then the company, Canon, ended up paying him another $25 million just for his tenure alone. What's more, Globus made sure to extend his cousin a $35 million line of credit to help seed his next film projects. All in all, you're walking away with a full company and $75 million to play with. While a major studio players in Hollywood watched with some interest, the public line had really amounted to, hmm, they split, how interesting. But... Industry insiders had already began to suspect fissures in the relationship, and murmurs that Globus always was the smarter of the two began to burble up to the surface and actually make its way into the trade prints. Cannon pressed on and adjusted accordingly. With Marvel now gone off the table, director Payun was told essentially, take lemons and make lemonade. So the sets that he had for a now scrapped, unmade Masters of the Universe sequel, and the costumes and effects work that were going to be made for the now defunct Spider-Man film, were reused, and he ended up penning a little post-apocalyptic story that would ultimately become 1989's Cyborg, using the Masters of the Universe sets, and the Spider-Man costumes. So what does Golan do now that he has ultimate freedom? He's got a company that's now his, and he's got $75 million in his pocket to play with. Well, first, he goes on to make that adaptation of the Three Penny Opera, which he wrote and directed himself, and he releases it under the title Mac the Knife. In spite of having some real talent attached to the project, and I mean real talent, you have Raul Julia, as McKeith, the role that had gotten him a Tony on Broadway. You have Richard Harris on board, playing Mr. Peachum. Roger Daltrey of The Who is a street singer who acts as a one-man Greek chorus for our entire show. And then famous Broadway actor Clive Revel, I mean, seriously, the probably the best Fagin from the film Oliver, here as Money Matthew. And what the hell, just for grins, throw in Bill Nighy as Tiger Brown. This is a real cast, and yet, when the final film was made, it was a train wreck. Critics savaged it. Roger Ebert stated that the movie is finally a slog through a half-digested plot, involving half-understood characters who bear the names but not the means or the spirits of the original stage play. 
Janet Maslin of the New York Times focused instead on the tawdriness of the London panhandlers and the prostitutes who made their way up on the big screen, noting that Mr. Golan has made all of this seem even more unpleasant than one might have thought possible. In a city where begging is a profession. Beggars can make a bundle. Crime is an art. A handshake is as good as cash. And vice is a business. The master of them all is a thief named Mac the Knife. One of the most notorious crooks in all of London. Don't just go mad. Mad! She fell for a man who should have been hanged years ago. He is Mac the Knife. King of Soho. And I impeach him. King of the beggars. Now, the power and magic of Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill is brought to video. Mac the Knife, an enthusiastic 10, Gary Franklin, ABC TV. Mac the Knife is cause for rejoicing. Dennis Fisher, Dramalogue. Felonies, forgeries, perjuries. You're a terrible person, Mac. Arrest Mac the Knife. Who's getting hanged here, you or me? Richard Harris. Julia McGuinness, Roger Daltrey, Julie Walters, and Raul Julia as Mac the Knife. I am a professional thief, aren't I? Enjoy a classic story of a legendary criminal. Mac the Knife, now available on video cassette. So what's Golan's second move as a solo act? He goes and he tries to get some petty vengeance on Cannon and his former partners. Knowing that his proposed film about the Lombada was set to come out in the spring of 1990, and that it was not considered to be one of the intellectual properties that Golan got to retain or get a taste of, the angry director decided that he was going to go toe-to-toe with his former partners, and just as things had been six years prior when Cannon attempted to scoop Beat Street with their offering of breaking, Golan decided that he was going to wage cinematic war by creating his very own Latin dance movie and release it on the same weekend. So, here, let's backtrack. Cannon had greenlit Lombada a year prior, and had hired director Joe Silberg, of Breaking fame, to helm the project, and they had enlisted a cast of fresh-faced actors, people like J. Eddie Peck, who would have fame in soap operas, Melora Hardin, who most of you would recognize as the character Jan Levison from the American version of The Office, and all-around great dancer Adolfo Shabadu Quinones. The story was simple. A mild-mannered high school teacher in Los Angeles spends his nights burning up the dance floor at the clubs, and he ends up winning the respect of his students, but his passion for dance may end up costing him his job. It was polished, it looked slick, and it was made for almost no money. The whole budget, $900,000. Clearly, this was the sort of classic low-budget offering that Canon had built its reputation on.
A teacher, his student, and the dance that changed their lives and tore a school apart. Exotic, erotic, lose yourself in the heat. This is the 90s, man. Chicks got a right to choose. Go all the way. La Set the night on fire. Contrasting, Golan strategically entitles his script The Forbidden Dance, although it would end up getting released as The Forbidden Dance is Lombada, which he of course wrote himself, but in this case he wisely hired B-movie director Graydon Clark to helm the project. For the production, soup to nuts, it went from writing to being in the can in three months' time. The story? Well, of course. It's about a Brazilian native princess who travels to LA to help stop evil corporations from destroying the rainforest by way of both black magic and, of course, the power of sexy dancing to help persuade the populace to boycott the company and thus save her land. You know, that old chestnut. Golan got former Miss USA Laura Herring to be his big star, and honestly, the next big name on that list is one of our favorites, the late great Sid Haig, who plays the tribal shaman who attempts to help our heroes at his own peril. Yeah, it's... well, here, take, take a spin. From the jungles of the Amazon... To the heart of America. Only one dance can turn feeling into rhythm. Strangers into lovers. Passion into fury. She is hot. The romance behind the dance. The danger behind the beat. The magic behind the music. The forbidden dance, Lambada. Passion has a rhythm all its own. The forbidden dance is Lambada. Both films were slated to make their debuts on March 16th of 1990. And unsurprisingly, all parties had misread the dance trend. While Dancing the Lombada was popular at clubs, that did not mean that mainstream American audiences were dying to see it up on the big screen. Both films were panned and had rather low audience turnout, but at least one of the two was polished and looked to have an air of quality about it which, of course, was the Lombada put out by Canon, and that movie actually still turned a small profit, while Golan's The Forbidden Dance didn't even break even. Canon, for its part, continued to expand and have a modicum of success. Pathé under Peretti ended up buying up MGM, where they would install Globus to be the head of the studio, just one more thing to add salt into his own cousin's self-inflicted wounds. 
Golan, for his part, would go barnstorming across Khan, becoming a one-man show, promising a slate of over eight movies and looking for investors. Though he found it hard to function without his cousin at his right hand, helping him navigate the ins and outs of wheeling and dealing. He gave interviews, he told Variety that he was still recovering for what he viewed as a divorce. And deep down he was secretly holding out hope that Globus would realize he made a mistake and come back to join him. Noting that in the offices for 21st Century Pictures in Beverly Hills, they purposely had an empty office waiting with the title of President on the door and a picture of Yoram Globus on the desk. A long shot that his cousin would see the light. Golan would spend the next year racking up a slate of films and spending all of his money as well as his credit on them. While certain deals, like the direct-to-video production of 1990's Captain America, did get some traction, most of 21st Century Films' offerings were box office disappointments, and at the close of the year, Golan was now operating with the reputation of being a has-been, and what's worse, being a con-man, because some of his latter pictures he consistently ended up stiffing his crews, ignoring union-mandated breaks, and attempting to skate by and avoid providing meals to his workers. His wife, Rachel, finally having enough of all of this, moved back to Israel without him, leaving Golan alone in the U.S. to, quote, figure things out. 21st Century Films quickly found itself racking up over $100 million in debt and had to file for Chapter 1 bankruptcy. Golan had tried to negotiate new capital with the selling of the rights to Spider-Man to a Japanese firm, but that would lead to a lawsuit that would later reveal that Golan had never properly filed his rights with the U.S. Copyright Office, which caused both MGM and Viacom to argue that they too were owned a piece of the action. In the end, though, the courts would rule that the original rights to Spider-Man would revert back to Marvel, who turned around and sold those same rights to Sony, and that gave the green light to make the 2001 Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi-directed Spider-Man that we all know and love today. By 1993, Golan would leave his company in ignominy, his tail clearly tucked between his legs. Out of options, he packed it all in and went back to his homeland of Israel, where he continued to work as a director for hire, trying to write projects out for himself. Things were not all sunshine and lollipops for Globus, though. While he got to enjoy a year-long run helming MGM, Globus was shocked to discover that all of those things that people had been saying about Giancarlo Peretti were actually true. He was a criminal. In 1991, warrants were issued for Peretti's arrest when it showed that he had been using the various studios that he controlled as a way to launder money for the Italian mob. In a hasty bid to hold on to his seat, Globus tried to engineer a corporate coup to hold on to his position as the head of MGM. He was shocked when his erstwhile partners were dragged off by Interpol agents, having first to answer to the French government over all their ill-gotten gains that was quickly revealed to be $500 million. Globus found himself ousted as MGM's head, and while he did attempt to sue Peretti for restitution, he knew the writing was on the wall. He had been taken for a ride, and there was no coming back from it. Realizing there was nothing to be done that could rectify his situation, Globus accepted his fate and decided to return to Israel, where he would start his own company, Globus Corp., and he successfully started to produce films and make forays into television. During all of this, Golan and Globus refused to speak to one another, each one thinking the other was in the wrong. 
In typical fashion, though, it would be Golan who would break the silence to the press, ignoring his own failures and acting as if he was a prophet of doom, commenting on the kerfuffle with Peretti and the disillusion of Cannon as a company. I, I prophesized the catastrophe. Me. When he was asked, though, if he thought he would ever make up with his cousin, if they could forgive and go back to working together, Golan would pause and cryptically say, A lot of water has to flow underneath the Jordan to make me forget. Our agent Marty Baum said, look, if you guys want to just go make a film and be totally left alone, there are two new guys in town. Menachem Golden and Yoram Globus were the heavyweights. They were the George Foremans and the Muhammad Ali's of the indie market. Canon is the only company who loves cinema. Cinema is our life. Yoram Globus was the businessman behind the movie making. Where is my money? You promise and promise and promise and you're not paying. Menachem Golan was the movie maker. Menachem, I cannot do it. I'm dying. Said, you know, do it and then die. I just had in my head what movie producers should be, and Menachem just didn't quite fit that picture. He redubbed me with an American voice, but not a voice that's similar to mine. A true ninja doesn't kill, he eliminates, and only for defensive purposes. He's so not ninja. I don't know, I've never seen a ninja. They were the forerunners of the Weinsteins. The difference is the Weinsteins cared about quality. Sometimes we make better films, sometimes we, we don't make such good films, but we do make films. One of my first questions was, how much money do you think you'll be spending on it? And they said, oh, probably $10 million. I think they ended up spending about $3.75 on it. They were considered schlockmeisters. It's schlock, but they sure do make a lot of it. The name of the game is to do, not just to blah, 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 blah. Talk about it. Everything we got would go in two piles for the two Chucks, Bronson and Morris. It could have been Wuthering Heights, which one is for Chuck and which one is for the other Chuck. The audience wasn't prepared for the craziness, the looniness. Ninja 3 The Domination managed to take The Exorcist, a ninja movie, and combine it with Flashdance. Guys, really? I mean, that's insane. Sylvester Stallone showed up and he pointed up to Dolph. He goes, you gave that guy lines? This is our fight. I don't want innocent people to die. I felt a little stupid doing it. Why the orangutan came to the office. Menachem's deciding whether to sign the orangutan to put him under contract. It was crazy. Talking to a monkey. This would be an epic of cinema. Blockbuster of the century. Oh, God. We are in so much trouble. And that's why they put a stamp on pop culture. It's hard to say who wears canon films without laughing. At the end of the movie, I had tears in my eyes. And then Achim, he says, Aha, I got you. I was crying because I saw my career going down the toilet and I didn't know what I was going to do next. <laughs> almost like a bowel movement you make a movie it comes out you flush it and you move on to another one and yet in typical fashion what would ultimately end up bringing the two estranged cousins and partners together again pettiness 
While Golan would claim that he was never quite over being mad at his own flesh and blood for going against him, the cousins found a reason to start speaking again when video store owner turned documentarian Mark Hartley, we've spoken about him when we covered our tribute to Weng Weng with For Your Height Only, as well as when we did our Osploitation Month, he came along and decided he was going to make a documentary about the Go-Go Boys and the history of canon films. It's only then that the cousins decided to drop their 20-year feud and begin to work together to craft a narrative about their own lives and to stop an outsider from having a lock on their story. Deciding that nobody would scoop them when it came to telling their tale, both Golan and Globus buried the hatchet and selected documentarian Hilla Medalia to profile them and to tell a rather rushed and, in my humble opinion, a very selective version of their own history, once again trying to beat the documentary that Hartley was putting out in 2014. That was Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of canon films. Their professional counter was The Go-Go Boys, the inside story of canon films, which is in itself a rather interesting experience to take in, as the two men involved don't really care to focus on any mistakes or setbacks that they experienced in their professional lives, both getting very testy, or in Golan's case, yelling at director Medalia when she actually tries to discuss setbacks that occurred in recounting the actual history of canon's failures. Both films were released in 2014 to positive reviews, although Hartley's to date is considered to be the better of the two documentaries, covering its subjects as a warts and all portrayal, loving the Go-Go Boys even when their actions illustrate why the audience shouldn't. Meet Israeli duo Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. They have a dream of taking over Hollywood with their company, Canon Films. And what kind of movies do they make? Some critics call them schlock films, but actually they're just plain low-budget movies. Did you ever make a $30 million movie? Never. I don't know what to do with 30 millions. I, I can make 30 movies, maybe. We thought that it will conquer the world. You knew there was going to be guns, you knew there was going to be chicks, you knew there was nudity, there was violence. Canon was synonymous with awesome in the 80s. They can leave the theater feeling a little bit better than when they went into the theater because the good guy does come out on top. I think you're going to be surprised how anxious the networks would be to do business with you. And he says to me in French, Vous êtes Monsieur Goran? And he rubbed my head. Karin, bring me Bloodsport. <laughs> I'm going to make you a movie star. They were experts at financing it, selling it, and then making it. They were selling before and then making after. Les panneaux d'affichage qui envahissaient la croisette, c'était Canon qui débarquait. Pour moi, les faire des films, c'est une grande histoire d'amour. To date, they have not made what I would say is a really fine film. You have to make hits in order to survive. Just didn't happen for them. They call us Go Go Boys. Go, go! <laughs> Means go, go! That said, still, both Golan and Globus got to enjoy seeing new generations of filmgoers flocking to festivals where canon pictures were featured 
as the cult offerings that they had become. Golan himself was able to go to New York City to marvel at how many viewers were taking in films that he and his cousin had made, grateful to be considered relevant again. Golan, though, would not live to see either of the documentaries made about him and his cousin hit the big screen, as he would pass away on August 10th, 2014, at the age of 85. A larger-than-life persona finally put to rest. When all was said and done, Golan had produced over 200 films, directed over 40, and had written just as many, a feat that had not been replicated by many. For his part, Yoram Globus continues on to this day. As of this recording, at the age of 79, he's continuing to work in films and has been a source of inspiration for many. Look, I, I gotta be honest. These men are no angels. Clearly, I can tell you about many better filmmakers and most likely many better human beings as I furrow my brow to give it a try. But I, I gotta say this. The Go-Go Boys have made an indelible contribution to both the history of film, and what's more, to my own childhood. And I owe them a debt of gratitude for the entertainment that they have provided both myself and my friends over the years. No trip to the video store would have been complete without passing multiple canon titles, and as monoliths in the field, we need to bow our heads in recognition that without these hucksters like Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, this world would be, at least cinematically, a far less interesting place. So, from all of us here at the LSCE, and for this entire summer series, just want to say thank you, Canon. You sparked our dreams, and you entertained us in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. You want more? Well... I'm sorry, I don't have anything else to offer you, but I can make a few recommendations. First and foremost, if you're a fan of the written word and you love digging into cinematic history, please do yourself a favor and go check out the amazing canon film guides put out by author Austin Tronick. Parts 1 and 2 have already been published, and his final Part 3 is still forthcoming, covering the latter days of canon and the final fare that the company put out in the early 90s. Both of those are currently retailing on Amazon.com right now for the price of $35 and $49 respectively, and they are well worth your time if you're a fan of 80s cinema, film history, or just love some cheesy fun. Oh, what's that? You don't like books? Well, not to worry, because you can take in either Mark Hartley's amazing documentary, Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, which has interviews with writers, actors, producers, directors who all worked with the Go-Go Boys back in the day, and how they felt about their time making some grade A cinematic gold. That could be yours on Blu-ray for $22.99 on Amazon.com, which would also give you Hartley's other documentary, Machete Maidens Unleashed to boot, which is a marvelous, marvelous bonus. Or, if you're feeling less inclined, you could just snag the film by itself on DVD for the low price of $9.08, which I would tell you, again, is a steal. Let's say you want to get the story straight from the horse's problematic mouths. Not to worry, Hilla Medallia's The Go-Go Boys, the inside story of canon films, can also be yours on Blu-ray for the low price of $14.99, again on Amazon. Or you can catch it on DVD for $9.99, which again, I would say is money well spent. 
Now, remember, folks, we here at the LSCE don't get anything for telling you where you should make your purchases at. We just feel in this day and age, it's ever so important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to the films keep releasing content that we love and enjoy. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's really about? Getting more of that that you love and enjoy? Besides, the movies themselves are amazing time capsules that explain the history of this short-lived yet very important film studio. So all self-respecting lovers of cinema should be reaching for their wallets right now. And this makes me just say it. What are you waiting for? Get out there and go get yourself some fine Canon merch today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. This officially concludes our summer of canon, and I do hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed making it. Thank you so much for joining us both this week and the entire season in general. I'd like to give a special thank you to our guest contributors over the summer, Mr. Dan Felton and Mr. Peter Martin, respectively. I can say that now that the season has wrapped, I have some new announcements for the podcast in general. As I mentioned last week, I would like to explain a little bit more. I've taken on a new batch of duties in my present job. This is a good thing, don't get me wrong. Heck, it's a promotion. But it's created a bit of a strain on my abilities to release content in a matter that you are currently accustomed to. That is, if you're a regular listener from week to week. Between my expanded duties and workload, I'm also teaching two courses this semester at the college I work for, which I assure you is a blast and I love doing, but that too cuts into my time to put out quality content that is worthy of your listening slits. That being said, I want to give assurances, I still plan on continuing on with this podcast. Nobody's looking to quit anytime soon. We don't have sponsors, we don't make a profit here, we're operating under the auspice that I'm going to keep doing this until I find it's no longer fun or until I drop. So fret not, we're not going anywhere anytime soon. Rather, I think I'm going to restructure how this show gets produced and put out. So you're going to probably have more thematically bound content that comes out in set patterns throughout the course of the year. This hopefully will give me some time to work ahead on content for you to enjoy, and likewise, it'll give me the freedom and ability to not be tied to having content released every single week. It's also my hope that in doing things this way, I will be able to provide more content for the website, which honestly has been sorely ignored over the last six months. So I say all of this to say it's my way of telling you that I'm going to be taking a short hiatus for about a month or so, and then we're going to come back strong with a theme to wrap around and end the year. And then, of course, we'll look to the future and we'll talk about what other content we want to cover. So I do hope you will be happy to join us then. If nothing else, I just want to say thank you for staying with us and listening over these years. And hey, if you're newer in the past months, thank you for joining us. It means the world. So if you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. 
We've recently been added to Stitcher, so you can find us there and give us a spin if you like. I'm also proud to say we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, you can simply say, Hey, Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on both Good Pods and Podchaser. Those are both podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. You can find us there, give us a follow and review if you could please, and hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists we're involved in to give us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and then that makes us more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do! Do you have any questions for us, any comments, any movies you want us to cover, anything you thought I got wrong? We want to hear from you. Please send us email or audio clips to lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Well, we use it here. You can follow us on Twitter, at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram, at LSC underscore podcast. We're also on Facebook if you're still one of those people that uses it. You can find us at Linden Street Cinema Experience. If you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, feel free send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, stay healthy and well, wash your hands, put on a mask if you feel like it, but remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.